all the posters for say, go and get your cervical screening, go and have your breast check. They were all still white middle-class people on a poster. So if you can't see something, you don't think it reflects to your you at all and you don't think you're part of the messaging. So that's why we've got to the point with menopause, women genuinely believe that the symptoms that we're describing and the impact on our bones, the impact on our cardiovascular health, the impact on mood and relationships and depression, the fact that we are surviving, not thriving, the fact that we would leave work, financially be hindered in the future. We genuinely as Black and Asian communities believe there is that withheld belief that it's not going to happen to us. It's not going to be something that will affect us. Dr. Nigar Arif is a GP specialising in women's health and menopause care, and she's conscious that menopause care needs to be accessible to everyone. Unfortunately, that is not currently the case. This is the Lizza Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle, and I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, World Menopause Day falls on October the 18th, so all this month, every episode is a menopause special. Now, at any one time, 13 million UK women are going through menopause. And as a listener of this show, you will be well aware that research shows HRT can help ease symptoms and protect long-term health. But the trouble is, a huge number of women face serious barriers when it comes to receiving vital menopause care. So today I want to explore inequalities in menopause healthcare, asking what we need to do to make it truly accessible to all. And to help me do this are two brilliant GPs. So Dr. Nigga Arif has over 15 years experience working in the NHS. She runs her own private women's health clinic too. Her new book is called The Knowledge, Your Guide to Female Health from Menstruation to the Menopause. It's a book that's truly for everyone, encompassing the experiences and perspectives of women of colour, as well as people of all abilities, cultures and communities. Now, Dr. Kuki Avery is also an NHS GP and she runs a private doctor-led menopause clinic called Chelvy Menopause. She's the lead GP for the large cohort of learning disability patients at her NHS practice and has been working to raise awareness about the menopause for these women as well as for their carers and their family members. Now, I want to make it clear that there are, of course, myriad barriers any individual might face when seeking menopause care. And I do hope that across the lifetime of this show, we will be able to look closely at all of them. But for today, we're going to talk specifically about barriers faced by women from ethnic minorities and those with learning difficulties. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So Nigga, Kuki, a very warm welcome to both of you to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And Kuki, we'll come to your work with learning disability patients in just a moment. But first, Nigat, I think we can all understand the frustration of not being able to get a GP appointment. And of course, that's an issue that certainly needs addressing. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about barriers to menopause care, is it? You Can you talk to me about why the model of our healthcare system is built on certain ethnic minorities facing real adversity when accessing menopause treatment? 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liz. It's a real honor and also to share the platform with Dr. Kiki as well, because our work complements each other really well. And the barriers, as you have said already, Liz, are myriad. But if you look at um, just the first fundamentals, it's the research. So I tend to start there. When we look at Black and Asian women, they've been historically left out of the research around menopause, but even conversations around the menopause. And I remember when I started doing and learning about menopause care, I went into the mosque and spoke to a lot of the women who were describing some symptoms of palpitations, hot flashes, brain fog, irritability, their period has, had sort of become erratic or they stopped. And I would say, I think what you're describing is perimenopause or you're heading towards the menopause. They would actually genuinely laugh at me and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> what you're talking about, Nagat, isn't real. This is a Western phenomenon. And I actually genuinely had um, my mother who said to me, when she was having a florid hot flush in front of me, and this is, by the way, a Punjabi, Pakistani woman standing in the kitchen making chapatis. And I said to her, mom, I think you're having a hot flush. And she said to me, oh, no, 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 no. Darling, only white women get that. And what? I just, no way. Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, my jaw dropped. And I said to her, how could you just say this to me? You know, your daughter does menopause care, but also you're nullifying the fact that these symptoms even exist in our culture. And she started laughing and she said, but you know what? Stand in the 50 degree heat in Pakistan and you'll know what a hot flush is. And then suddenly I had this awakening moment. Oh, the context of the symptoms are only ever going to be prevalent and what they offer up to the doctor if they think it's significant. So when you've been left out of research, you genuinely believe that those symptoms don't relate to you because it doesn't seem to relate to any of your lived-in experiences. And then the other thing is, is that we tend to then go to the doctor who might have scant information about your culture or your heritage. And so they might not know about the symptoms and they might that or historically I get women who say they've been gaslit they said to the doctor that I've got brain fog and the doctors just said no there's no such thing as brain fog or they've said I've got aches and pains and been told well it's fibromyalgia or it's your age or it's arthritis and so therefore again they've left the surgery with a packet of antidepressants because that's what the doctor thinks that they need and so when you've got these consistent messages going about and you genuinely feel that the conversation of menopause has either passed you by or you're not involved in it. And then the third thing that we notice amongst it, uh, the women that I work with is the fact that for the majority of them, this is a happy time. There's menopause parties. and Really? Uh, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because uh, you talked about how thriving in your later years and your midlife is so important. But if you look at the Chinese culture, it's the second spring. But in Pakistani culture, so I'm a Muslim woman, I wear a hijab, and I listen and work with a lot of my Pakistani, South Asian women, Indian women. And for them, if they're entrenched in their faith, so as a Muslim woman, you might be denied access to the mosque if you are on your period or told not to fast. But suddenly your periods have stopped and it's a hurrah moment. You have all these freedoms to be able to attend the mosque, attend the rituals. Uh, which could be a significant part of your life. So actually, it's not a feared moment in our culture. It's a, it's a, it's a time that's fully embraced. That's really amazing. What very, very interesting insight. Well, Kuki, welcome back to the show. It was really fab having you on before talking about bone health, especially around menopause. And today we're going to be talking about your work with learning disability patients. So you're the lead GP for the large cohort of learning disability patients at your NHS practice, raising awareness about the menopause for these women specifically. I guess the first question is, why does particular awareness need to be raised for this group? Is it a case that they do need different or additional information to the generic menopause messaging? Great question to start with, Liz, and it's, it's an honour to be back on the podcast with you and to share the platform with Nigat. And thank you, Liz, for raising awareness about all these really important topics that just aren't talked about enough. So, yeah, great question. Why, why do we need to focus on women with learning disabilities? 15% of the global population have a learning disability and people with learning disability continue to have far shorter life expectancies than the general population. And actually, on average, they die 20 years younger than the general population. And what's really interesting is that in the general population, women outlive men. However, 
within learning disabilities, women are dying at a younger age than men with learning disabilities. So therefore there appears to be this disadvantage of being a woman and having learning disabilities. And absolutely working within the NHS and having a large cohort of learning disability patients, it's very, very apparent that they are still struggling to get the care and the needs that they deserve. You did a study, didn't you, looking at the management of menopause in women with learning disabilities in primary care. What did that study show and were there any concerning trends that you noticed that really do need to be rectified? Yes, so I did a study with my colleagues, Dr. Laura Flexer and Dr. Matt Noble, and we did it to try and look at how menopause was being managed in learning disability patients in the community. So we looked at patient records across seven GP practices in the southwest of England, and we included women who were on the learning disability register and had um, and were over the age of 45. And the results were fascinating. And Actually, interestingly, we were really pleasantly surprised to see that 22% of the women at some stage had been prescribed HRT. But when we looked closer at their notes, what we found was that actually only 6% of the women that were prescribed HRT had been prescribed it for two years or more. And actually, the majority of women who'd been prescribed HRT had been given a one-off prescription with very poor follow-up and continuity of care. And I think we all know now that HRT is not a one-off prescription. It requires an awful lot of tweaking to get it right for an individual patient. And also to see those long-lasting effects and benefits, not only on symptoms, but also on heart health and bone health, it needs to be a continuous followed up programme and treatment. And there were all sorts of other fascinating things we discovered three out of the seven practices, there was no HRT prescribed for any of the learning disability women. Oh my gosh. On a positive note, there was one practice that that did have a a trained menopause doctor, um, trained through the British Menopause Society, and the proportion of patients prescribed HRT within that practice were far higher. And this really illustrates the need for the British Menopause Society and education programmes to continue to educate healthcare professionals about um, menopause and how we can treat these women and give give healthcare professionals confidence um, to prescribe for these women. Absolutely. And Nigat, I think ethnic minorities are frequently excluded actually from clinical research. And, you know, that feels careless at best and dangerous at worst. So what knock-on effect might there be for these women? It's a double full whammy, actually. If you look at the research, yes, we are um, not included in research or even offered it. But on the other hand, we've had, as communities, lived in experience of unethical practices. We as a community communicate by stories and storytelling and they go through generations. So if you've had an ethical practice such as the meningitis B vaccine being experimentally, air quotation mark, used on Nigerian children and complications from that, that goes through a community. And if you look at the black community in particular, the trauma that they've had to go through through times of slavery. So as a doctor, and Cookie will also agree with me on this, the Sims speculum The reason the sin speculum came about was because they were using young black women and using spoons and spatulas to look in their vulva and vagina for experimentation without any anesthesia or for any actual medical reason. And that's how the tool became developed. And we then sort of have uh, lauded over the fact that, yes, we've got this lovely equipment and we're going to now insert a sin speculum in you. But if you've got a generation that had that trauma, then that lasts. And so women don't want to come forward because they know that they have been let down horrifically. If you look at South Asian communities, the partition, where, you know, more than tens of millions of South Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan, the whole of Asia were sort of traumatized. And that trauma is still within our generations being passed on. Then the trust that you get in regards to mainstream healthcare and colonialism is, is, a, is a huge factor. So you don't want to put yourself forward because you don't know what's going to be done to you or the outcome of that uh, research that you want to take part in. The other thing that we've noticed as well is that even when communities, and I see this consistently now in 2022, 2023, when we are asked questionnaires, so for example, the biggest inquiry that's happening in the moment is to black women and maternal deaths. So we know black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. However, we've known this for possibly a well over a decade and a half, and we still don't have looked into this. So women are saying from those communities, we're giving you and telling you 
that we're not seen, we're not heard, we're not listened to. When we go in, our colour is a factor that allows uh, the healthcare professional to make a clinical judgment. If I want pain relief uh, for my endometriosis, for example, I'm denied pain relief because I'm seen as a drug-seeking addict. And that knock-on effect means that there's a real issue in regards to even when we're offering information, nothing seems to be done about it. And we've got to the point where there's frustration. So it is a double whammy in that respect when you have a lack of trust from both sides. You have um, unethical practices historically, which we need to deal with. We've got institutionalized racism, which is a really difficult topic to unpick. And it took SAGE in COVID time to actually say this because it's when we started losing black and Asian doctors from COVID that SAGE then said, oh, yes, we know that there are institutionalized racism at factor, something that our communities, our black and Asian communities had been saying historically. And um, Liz, I'm always reminded of the fact that, you know, how often are we represented? And when I was in Slough, which has a huge South Asian population, mostly Sikh, Bangladeshi, Pakistani. And I sat in the waiting room as a junior doctor and I was an F2 at the time. What does that mean? Sorry, an, an F2. So uh, an F2 is a, uh, a training foundation doctor. So I had the joy of actually having general practice in my rotation to learn primary care. And I sat in the waiting room and bear in mind where we are in Slough. All the posters for say, go and get your cervical screening, go and get your ovarian cancer check if you've got these symptoms, go and have your breast check. They were all still white middle-class people on a poster. So if you can't see something, you don't think it reflects to your yes. to you at all and you don't think you're part of the messaging. So that's why we've got to the point with menopause, women genuinely believe that the symptoms that we're describing and the impact on our bones, as Kuki has already said in your previous podcast, the impact on our cardiovascular health, the impact on mood and relationships and depression, the fact that we are surviving, not thriving, the fact that we would leave work, financially be hindered in the future. We genuinely as Black and Asian communities believe there is that withheld belief that it's not going to happen to us. It's not. Uh, it's, yeah. It's not going to be something that will affect us. That is just absolutely such a fascinating insight. And I guess when it comes to the research and the way it's presented, Kuki, similarly, the same can be said for those with learning disabilities. I mean, what are the potential long-term harms that are done for these women by those decisions? As Nigat's already said, you know, the, the, the data around not only the ethnic minority women, but also data around learning disability women and menopause is really limited. So the honest answer is, is we don't know. But what we do know is that these women experience additional challenges during the menopause such as difficulty understanding or coping with the physical and emotional changes that they experience. And right. studies do suggest that there are pitfalls in managing women with learning disabilities, including you know, late diagnosis, misdiagnosis, inadequate treatment, and also that there is this huge lack of knowledge about the menopause in this group, um, not only the women themselves, but also the carers and family members that look after them and healthcare professionals, as I've already said. So you can imagine women are not getting the treatment they need. And we, we know that if we start HRT within 10 years of a woman going through menopause, that not only it can have hugely beneficial effects on their symptoms, and particularly you can imagine learning disability women, um, you know, with a change in mood, a change in behavior, unable to express herself, you know, feeling more herself, but also we know, as we've already said multiple times and we've said today, HRT can have beneficial effects on, on the cardiovascular system, the heart and the bones. And particularly in this patient group, we know that learning disability women have higher rates of heart disease, have higher rates of osteoporosis and dementia. And also to add to that, these this patient group, um, particularly some of them, so for example, Down syndrome women and Turner syndrome women, they have higher rates of premature ovarian insufficiency. So they go through menopause at an earlier rate under the age of 40. A lot of them do. And so we need right. to be even more proactive in treating these women yeah. to prevent those those long lasting heart problems, perhaps, and, and osteoporosis. So it's a challenge um, that I don't feel we're, we're meeting and, and, and doing the best for these women yet. And Liz, by extension, I wanted to say to what Cookie is saying is that in Black and Asian women, we've had the first study, global study called the SWAN mm -hmm. study, 
which showed that even, you know, black and Asian women, they go through perimenopause, that natural mm. transition at 38, 39. So when women are going to their doctor uh, with periods and menopausal symptoms, they are being told, well, you're too young. You, you couldn't be going through right. it just now. Vaginal atrophy isn't real. You're too young for this. And Cookie actually sort of touched upon uh, with learning disabilities and Down syndrome. If you look at the clinical pathways as, a, as an NHS GP, I, I mean, I'm immersed in clinical pathways, as is Cookie, but they are very much set up for a white, able-bodied, yes. um, middle-class, well-to-do individual who's able to navigate themselves through the healthcare system. And if you've got, say, language, which, you know, a lot of women that I work with, English is not their first language. They speak mm -hmm. Punjabi, Hindi, Gujarati. If you, for example, are a wheelchair user, so how do you get onto the couch to have a smear test? If you are in an area where it's not set up in a way that things like, even simple things, women say to me, to be able to come to the appointment, Dr. I, for 10 minutes, I'm having to organize childcare for this many children that I've got. So, and the, the poverty aspect, the digital poverty aspect, all of those barriers mean that the clinical pathways don't even take into account how we even look after those that don't fit the mainstream, which is really tragic. And so if you look at our communities, that breaks even further trust in that the system will do the best for me because they feel let down yes. consistently. It's very interesting that you talk about different ethnicities having different age of onset of menopause. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? You know, what, what are, what's the kind of the average breakdown and are there other types of symptoms that perhaps might manifest themselves in different ways with different ethnicities? That's a really brilliant question because the only thing I can go by is at the moment the SWAN study, which looked at black women and it was a global study that was done and it looked at South Asian women, Hispanic women and South American women. And it did show that on average, and this isn't consistent for everybody, but probably 38, 39 is when natural perimenopausal symptoms start. But we're talking about perimenopause as this natural transition, but we know that there's primary ovarian insufficiency as well which happens in one in a hundred women below the age of 40. But the data for that is, is shoddingly poor. And Kuki yes. would agree with me when it comes to black and Asian and learning disability communities, even trans communities. And so we don't know whether actually that one in a hundred might be a bit higher than that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on Friday, last Friday, I was in clinic and I had a quite well-educated family, the mum, Punjabi, uh, Pakistani and her daughter, had stopped having her periods and I sort of warned them on the first appointment that I think I might be looking at primary ovarian insufficiency and got the test back and an FSH, this is a second FSH, that's follicle stimulating hormone, was high. And so I, I sat them down and I said to the mum and the daughter, you, you have this condition known as primary ovarian insufficiency, which means you're going into menopause earlier, but we don't know in regards to ethnic minorities whether this is a high risk amongst us, but we do know that this impacts your fertility. And do you know what happened? The daughter was fine. She was sitting there and she was just taking in the information, but the mother started crying and she was beside herself. And the first thing she said to me was like, which is translated in Punjabi to say, how will I marry her off now? Oh my gosh. And I, I was instantly, right. I broke me and Cookie and Liz, it was more the fact that it didn't, it, it, Within instantly, because I have that cultural background, I was immersed in exactly where that phrase comes from and how it's rooted within our culture. How do clinical pathways make allowances for that? How do clinical pathways make even yeah. uh, any nuances in regards to symptom presentation? But in Islam, if you look at our culture, we say in our, in our faith is that your parents have two jobs for you. One is to obviously raise you and nurture you and get you to be bigger and uh, wiser and make sure that you're a good human being. But the other is to marry you off. And the third one is hopefully your parents never get to bury you. Mm. But for her, for her now, I as a doctor practicing you were closing clinical that medicine, mm. I, exactly, but I was able to then relate mm. with that and really understood where that phrase come from. And I think those sort of cultural practices, nuances are so much within our communities, mm. but we don't share them with everybody else. So your other question was, how do the symptoms present? And what I've found from my qualitative data is that women don't come presenting with, say, issues about hot flushes because their context is so different. They don't come in talking about mood-related symptoms because it's such a taboo. They're so worried that they'll get labeled bargain, which is translated as crazy. 
Um, they don't come in with things like uh, paranoia or brain fog because they're worried that if they tell everyone that they're forgetful, that they will again think that they've got either early onset dementia or mm -hmm. the worst thing is they think that it's a punishment from God because they didn't pray hard enough. <sighs> so what women tend to do in, in South Asian and black communities is that they'll come forward with physical symptoms. So they'll say, which is translated as, you know, all my mm -hmm. joints ache, my head to toe yeah. pain, which if you're talking to a Western doctor who might not have that cultural background, mm -hmm. might be thinking, oh, it's head to toe pain. And I've genuinely seen that. I don't know whether you have cookie in medical notes that has said all over body pain. Absolutely. Yeah. And now I'm thinking, I think that diagnose, that sort of symptom was actually women expressing perimenopausal symptoms and the other thing that women will tend to complain about are more gut related symptoms so they'll say bloating my hazma my, dig my digestion isn't so great they'll complain mostly of say period related symptoms but urinary tract symptoms rather than actually vaginal atrophy right and then talking yeah. about things like sexual dysfunction so painful sex um painful smears is such a massive taboo uh, in my first time looking at ethnic minorities, we found that only 10% of consultations ever even had a vaginal atrophy as a diagnosis or even the symptomology of it, which shows how little we're picking up all these symptoms in different groups. I know that you, you speak a number of languages. Am I right in saying that some languages actually don't even have a word for menopause? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. So we have in Punjabi, it's known as um, which is translated in Punjabi as off the rag. So because we only have derogatory words for this stage in our life, because although it's celebrated as women, but in a cultural context, you're now surplus to excess because in Urdu, this is even worse. Liz. In Urdu, it's translated as um, banji. Banji is um, barren. So the only oh, no. role of a woman <laughs> is to have children. Yeah. And this is why fertility is so prized within our communities. And so POI is so underground as a diagnosis within our community. And same as polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis, but POI particularly, which also brings about menopausal symptoms. But Banji is what we use. So what women find is that they can't even say the word because there is nothing that they have. No. But it's even no. worse than that because the words that we use for say vulva, vagina, breasts, they're all swear words in our language. Oh my um, gosh, you can't, so you can't yeah. even have a sort of a, a, a polite conversation about them. No, no. Uh, in fact, when I do uh, video social media content now in my language uh, on YouTube or um, Instagram, as you might have seen yes, some of my reels sure. in different languages, is because I want to use, uh, I have to go to English words because I can't use the swear words that we have for women's genitalia. And, you know, anyone listening to this podcast will know in English we have similar swear words as well. But yes. we must stop doing that because it perpetuates this fear and shame around our normal biology that we are born with. Mm. And I know that when we talk about those with learning difficulties, for example, very often, uh, Kuki, you're going to be relating to carers or other family members. Interesting that Nigat there talks about women, you know, coming in with, with their mothers. What role does the support system need to play, actually, in, in focusing menopause information and support for, for those who are supporting those with menopause issues? Yes, and I think this is a huge part of the jigsaw for improving care for these women. You know, due to communication difficulties, women with learning disabilities do rely heavily on their carers and family members to recognize and address signs and symptoms of their perimenopause and menopause, but also to arrange consultations with healthcare professionals. And carers also then play a crucial role in the close monitoring of the effects of HRT, making sure it's suitable, managing any potential side effects, and making sure that, that they're collecting regular repeat prescriptions and, and, and staying on their treatment. And I think that at the moment, from, from my feeling working within the community and having close, close liaisons with carers, that they, there isn't enough education in this area. And, and it's, it's something we need to be really focusing on to improve care for these women. Cookie, can I just ask, in British Sign Language, is there still no word for menopause? I don't think there is. I don't think there is yet. 
Yeah, it's Isn't crazy. crazy. Considering that we've had, like, you know, Strictly with it's Rose uh, yes. and, and showing us how she's able to dance and not hear anything. I mean, that was oh, the most powerful it was thing unbelievable, I've ever seen. It? Mm. And mm. to know that there's a section of community and, and, you know, the deaf community, which is a huge section of society, yes. who still don't have a word. Don't have a sign word language. for it. There is just so much to cover. Let's pause for a moment here, but I do want to come back shortly and talk really about what the government, the NHS, and of course the patients themselves need to be doing to improve this situation so we can make it better for everyone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, Nagat, the TUC and Unison have found that black and ethnic minority women could face additional difficulties with menopause when racial discrimination was also present, workplace settings, for example. Is that something that you're conscious of? Yeah, so we did uh, a feedback to the select committee, uh, all parliamentary select committee hearing uh, regarding the figures when it comes to black and Asian community women. And actually the data, a lot of it was derived from the NHS workers group, because if you look at it, the NHS is the biggest employer of all ethnicities and the biggest employer of black and Asian women. And what we were finding was that women around the age of about sort of 40 to 55 were leaving the NHS. And that's all different roles. We're not even just talking about, say, non-clinical roles. We were talking about radiologists and surgeons and, and so forth, but far more from black and Asian communities. And this isn't really a complex area. The the data is showing us again that A, when you don't have knowledge around it, uh, around menopause, and we just assume that all doctors understand the signs and symptoms of menopause, but it's not part of our training. So I've genuinely had conversations with, say, clinical radiologists or even surgical friends who say to me, I suddenly became really clumsy or my brain fog is affecting me and I'll use the word perimenopause for the first time. And uh, they feel sort of horrified that they're at that age and also horrified even further that they might need to consider hormone replacement therapy. I would say in the last six months or so, it has got better, but that's because of the likes of you, Davina, all of us on social media making a huge noise and actually showing representation of all different women saying that this impacts us. And so when we know that the data around uh, South Asian communities also show that there is a greater impact into multi-complex families. And what I mean by that is you're more likely to be living with your in-laws, your parents, uh, your children are still probably at home. 
So mm-hmm. we saw that in COVID as well with the spread of COVID in Bangladeshi families, like five generation living in one house. Yes. And what happens is, is that women find that actually what I'll do is I've got my parents to look after. I've got my children. Now I've got my grandchildren because my daughter leaves them four times a week. Uh, I've got this added responsibility. On top of that, my youngest still needs to have an uh, arranged marriage, which um, I work in, a, I live in a community where that is still a huge part of it. In fact, um, my mother won't mind me sharing this, but we're looking for my sister. Oh, really? <laughs> if anyone's interested. <laughs> okay, you know where if to anyone apply. Because <laughs> um, she, she said to my mum, oh, I can't, you know, I, I, I don't know how to find somebody. So she's given the responsibility <laughs> to my parents and my mother every day. It's a bit like, you know, really? being in a saga of pride and prejudice. My mother's <laughs> constantly eyeing up suitors. Long story short, um, I mean, I had an arranged marriage as well. And uh, it is it, it is something that is such a huge fabric of our society and mm. our community. So what happens fundamentally is the woman in the middle of it who's coping with her perimenopausal symptoms by herself will probably leave the workplace. And it's estimated it's getting better with the menopause mandate making so much noise. But... If we don't look after women in the perimenopausal phase, a million women are estimated to leave the workplace, which, as you and I know, where do we ever break that glass ceiling? And that's awful statistics to have. So it is getting better, but governments really need to ensure that there is uh, support available for all communities, learning disability communities as well, and able-bodied, non-able-bodied, but the trans and LGBTQ plus communities, because I think that we cannot have conversations around menopause you know whether it's primary ovarian insufficiency surgical chemical or the natural transition without including these communities anymore it's unforgivable to do that now absolutely and i think kuki you know looking at the stats we're all going to be living longer what might that mean in terms of additional demands being placed on service provision if things don't change for the particular group of patients that you're looking at yeah, absolutely. So, 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 although I said at the beginning of, of the podcast that women with learning disabilities are dying at a younger age, and also, although I've alluded to that, we are getting better. We are getting better at looking after these patients. They are, their life expectancies have improved dramatically. But, but also, as you said, Liz, women generally are living longer, which is fantastic. But that means that we need to be really focusing on this particular stage in our life, this the menopause, and, and making sure that women have access to discuss their symptoms, but also have access to discuss how can I treat my menopause so that I can live as long and a healthy as life as possible. And so I think we really need to be focusing on menopause education for lots more healthcare professionals targeting all women, but especially, as as Negat has said, not forgetting the ethnic minorities and learning disability women. So what does the law currently say about all this, by the way? You know, I know various laws obviously prohibit discrimination, but I wonder if that might be incredibly difficult to pinpoint in, in reality day to day. I think that is absolutely right, because it's hidden. No one overtly makes racist comments, but you could either be phased out of your work gradually because you're having insomnia and unable to keep up to task or somebody, you know, you're having huge flushes through your uniform in Tesco or, you know, I'm just picking any super brand there, but that means that you might find that actually you want to change your duties or struggle to make the shift or you're falling behind uh, the other colleagues as well. And again, rather than looking at your menopausal symptoms and supporting you, you're again, you know, having a, a disciplinary hearing. And it escalates really quickly, and especially if you don't have uh, the language or the lexicon to be yes, able to, to communicate. Yes, to be able to say, the, actually, to this say, is what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's... Or the confidence, because yeah. we all assume, like, we've got three, you know, incredibly confident, powerful women on this Zoom call, but not everybody has that, or not everybody has even the access to the information. And I, and I, And I'm always reminded of the fact that we have a lens of privilege which we look through and we say everybody's like this, but actually, for some people, their reality is that they have a, a job with they're holding down, but then still accessing food banks at the time, and they are just trying to make ends meet and what we should be trying to do is uh, within workplace is provide the support and now there is something called the workplace pledge, which wellbeing or women. I've signed to I know Liz you know a lot about mm, that and mm-hmm. it's happening at governmental level because so Lindsay Hoyle signed the workplace pledge to say look even in the House of Commons 
We're going to be supporting women who are transitioning. But more importantly, we want to make the men mm. aware because we consistently talk about women. And I totally believe when it comes to menopause, it's not a woman's issue. This is a societal issue. Yeah, this is a man's issue. issue. Mm. It's mm -hmm. a people issue because if the woman is well in the household, then the whole household as well. And that really came stark for me when I saw a patient of mine, a Pakistani gentleman, who would always come in, talk about cricket, and his blood pressure was just going up and up and up. And it was on the seventh consultation, and I was thinking of introducing maybe a third line high blood, you know, hypertensive medication. And I said to him, is everything all right at home? What's going on? And after a bit of sort of embarrassment and feeling sort of inadequate he just said no actually my wife's not sleeping well there's no intimacy she complains of feeling hot all the time she's irritable and she's angry and I said to him do you know what get your wife to come yes. and see me because I think she's going through so actually the problem wasn't him he, the mm. stress and the environment that he was living in was causing his blood pressure to go up and that's the other way that we see we I tend to pick up menopausal symptoms because I like that I'm in tune as a women's health GP but I pick it up through that way and then uh, you know two or three weeks later he came back with his wife and his wife firstly was incredibly hesitant and said I don't need to see Dr. Nagat <laughs> <laughs> and then once we were able to open up the conversation the couple was so grateful and I think that's why we we must never forget the men whenever we're having no. this conversation. Interesting that, that you talk about government action there. I know that you've presented your clinical work at the Menopause in the Workplace Parliamentary Committee hearing. How much of this mm. change then needs to be top down, you know, actually driven by government? It's vital. It's necessary. And it's vital to be able to make sure that it's done at the highest level because it's that need to make sure that women aren't being let down by the system as a whole because we have so much fail-safe uh, systems in place. I mean, they're not perfect, but for, say, maternity care and pregnancy rights. Yes, and we've managed get that, maternal we? cover. We've managed mm. that, exactly. And so, you know, you're, you start your periods at the age of 12 and you're, you're sort of finding your way through that. Then you get to your fertile years and you've got some support within the workplace or career pathways to be able to support you with that. And then you hit the menopause or perimenopause and then there's nothing yeah. because... It, tumbleweed. It, it's, it's tumbleweed, exactly. The system is set up in a way where then the junior partner at the practice, who probably has far less experience than you, is now promoted in the job that you are rightfully, mm. you know, geared up and entitled to have. And yet we still say the seven trusts in, you know, the major trusts in the whole of the country, why are the CEOs, bar one, all men? And I'm just like, you know, the NHS is the biggest employer why are all the CEOs all men still? Mm, it's a very good question. Kuki, thinking about NHS trusts and healthcare practitioners generally, what do they need to be so much more conscious of, do you think, in order to ensure that people of all ethnicities and communities receive equal care? Oh, well, it's. It, I think it all comes down to education, awareness and breaking taboos, really, doesn't it? Surrounding the treatment and care of these women. And and I think we all have a responsibility to be advocates, you know, for these this these particularly vulnerable groups of women. And I think it's amazing that we have such powerful bodies and people such as yourself, you know, all these people talking to the government, trying to raise awareness and trying to change guidelines. But I think it's going to be a slow process. But I feel it is happening, Liz. I feel that, that the conversation is happening really? and, and it's all about mm. continuing that and continuing that the, the education and awareness. So finally, then, do you think that we are moving forward? Do you see some positive changes, some positive steps? I would say every single menopausal woman I speak to, Liz, says how, and this isn't just those from, with learning disabilities or from an ethnic minority, they say that their menopause symptoms are significantly impacting not only on their day-to-day -day life, but also on their work. Um, am I seeing an improvement? I, I feel that menopause is a conversation at the moment, which I love. Um, I feel that women are getting stronger and more powerful and having a voice to to say how they feel truly um i feel we still have a long way to go but i i i feel positive that things are happening and and starting to 
to go the right way. Well, as they say, the longest journey starts with the first step, yeah. doesn't it? So it's it's important to, to make that. And, and finally, Nigat, what's your feeling for the future here? Well, I'm working with Dame Leslie Regan on the women's health strategy quite closely, looking at the whole spectrum of the women's biological journey from puberty years to fertility years and also then the midlife and beyond because I totally uh, love and I keep coming back to that phrase that you said at the start it's about not survival it's about thriving and there's no excuse for why women can't thrive right up into their 80s and 90s. I've got a 90 year old who who tells me every single time that I have to prize the HRT out of my dead (laughs) hands and I love it because that's the kind of power I need yeah me and And her both absolutely exactly and Uh, and she is like the biggest advocate mm. plays tennis three times a week and I think that we've got to get beyond the fact that you know 90 is just a number but women are thriving and being able to be incredibly powerful Mm. so that gender gap divide isn't so much that pay gap divide isn't so much And with the women's health strategy, what we've decided for the first time historically, which is being done, is that we're getting, I mapped out all the groups that are doing grassroots work, because I do worry all the time that we have these conversations and we have a bit of a savior complex that I'm going to go in and talk to, say, my black community and tell them, this is what I've learned. And now you need to do this. I hate that because actually those communities have their own systems that are really great and they work brilliantly and they know how to uplift themselves rather than us coming in as saviors. So what I did was with um, NHS England is we mapped out the 55 groups so far that we knew of through various means and uh, forming a collective of all of these big groups so that Black Women Rising, Sisters, there's also a group called Afrocats as well, so all over the UK. The reason this is being done is because we work in silos. We forget that Asian communities and Black communities, uh, they do brilliant work themselves, but we're not one monolith. I hate the term mm. BAME, uh, Black Asian <laughs> communities, because BAME just puts up, like, clumps us into one. So here's the white experience, and then this is the BAME mm. experience. And I hate that because it's not like that at all. It, we Women are women, or women talk to women, and women share information very freely. And that's insane wherever you go. And what we need to do is but then understand the nuances, because I know as a Pakistani, Muslim, hijab-wearing, South Asian woman, I'll never be the voice for a Black woman at all, because they have their own lived-in experiences. Yes. So the idea now is, for the first time, by having a group, listening to what they're actually saying, but then watching what they're actually doing within their communities means that we can have clinical pathways which aren't white, able-bodied centric. So, for example, in Tower Hamlets, if you go there and talk to Somalian women about how to do breast examination and you know give them pictures of boobs, they will completely be horrified they'll that you're doing out, that. They? That's, right. They'll freak out because that's not their cultural nuance. And but actually what we did was we made uh, bread and dough balls and put a frozen pea in there and said to them, <laughs> okay, examine this dough ball really? and then this is how you examine a breast. And do you know what? That went down like a storm and now I those workshops it. are taking up that way uh... because we have this saviour complex to go, I'm going to go in and show you some boobs and this is how you need to do it. But actually, no, watch how the community are doing the information and mm-hmm. educating themselves and then amplify that so they do it more, but then we harness that and put that into clinical pathways. So hopefully on another podcast, I'll be able to show you mm-hmm. how that's going because uh, there's lots of work ahead planned. Wonderful. I shall never look at a dough ball in quite the same <laughs> way again. It's put a lovely... A pee in there. <laughs> <laughs> what a positive note to end on. Dr. Kuki Avery and Dr. Nigat Ari, thank you so much for sharing all that you've done and continued strength uh, and love and light to both of you. It's, it's just been great to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Thank you. Uh, Nigat and Kuki, what a brilliant duo, don't you think? Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And even more importantly, for all the work that you are doing behind the scenes to make access to great menopause care better for everyone. And we do mean everyone. Well, next week we're talking HRT. I know you might be thinking that we mention HRT a lot on this show, and okay, we do. But I want to take this opportunity to really dig deep into the practicalities of hormone replacement 
therapy. Everything from when to take it, how long to take it for, and how much to take. So do make sure you're following the podcast so that you are back here with me next week and the wonderful Dr. Louise Newson. And if you'd like to listen to that episode 24 hours before anyone else, you can subscribe to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And of course, once you're a subscriber, all episodes are ad-free as well. If you'd like to carry on any of these conversations in between podcast episodes, you absolutely can. Come and have your say, share your story on Instagram at Lizelle Wellbeing. And I am personally there at Lizelle Me Too. Look forward to seeing you. Until the next time though, go very well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.